Welcome back to the Vatican Briefing, National Catholic Reporters podcast covering Pope Francis's summit on the future of the Catholic Church. I'm Joshua McElwee, the reporter's news editor and former Vatican correspondent. And hello, I'm Christopher White, the reporter's current Vatican correspondent. We're coming now to the final few days of Pope Francis's four-week Synod of Bishops, which is discussing big issues that could affect the very future of the global Catholic Church. Later in this show, we'll be interviewing two guests. Joining us first will be Cardinal Michael Cherney, the head of the Vatican's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development. And then we will welcome Dr. Susan Pascoe, a distinguished leader in the Australian Church and Government who is taking part in the Synod Assembly. Before we get to our interviews, let's talk a bit about what has happened in the last week at the Synod. We're recording this on Friday, October 20th. Chris, do you want to give a bit of a rundown of everything that has happened this week? Well, Josh, it's been another full week here in Rome. <laughs> We've had an- another week of active discussions inside the Synod Hall, but also events outside as well. And I th- guess I'll start by reflecting back on last night, on Thursday, October 19th. There was a special prayer service for migrants and refugees. And after the Synod delegates finished up their day-long discussion, they moved into St. Peter's Square, where the Pope presided over a prayer service. There was a migrant from Cameroon and another one from Ukraine and others present. And they gathered in front of that remarkable statue that's been in the square since 2019 called Angels Unawares. And there are, I I think, almost 150 different migrants depicted in this statue. So a pretty stunning setting for this very somber occasion to pray specifically for the needs of migrants and refugees. That was one of the events outside the Senate Hall. Uh, And I I think everyone that we've talked to said it was a really beautiful occasion, specifically coming in this moment where the war in Ukraine is on so many people's mind, but also the war in Israel and Gaza, that I think we're seeing so many more people being displaced from their homes. Yeah, and we're very lucky that Cardinal Cherney is coming on specifically to talk about this prayer service and his work. Many will know his story in terms of his dedication to helping migrants and refugees and his earlier work with Pope Francis specifically on that issue. Another thing that's been key in the Synod Hall this week has been uh, lots of debate and discussions over the role of women in the church, particularly about the possibility of women serving in more leadership roles in the church, also possibly as ordained deacons or even ordained priests. We haven't been getting a lot of information from the Synod Hall in terms of how these discussions are going. The Vatican has been having press briefings each day. I think it's fair to say those have been a bit oblique or obtuse. We've gotten a bit of information, not much. Keen listeners may know that there was a bit of an interesting situation at the press briefing on October 17th when it it felt as if from the journalist perspective that one of the members of the Synod was suggesting that journalists were trying to impose their agenda on the Synod, particularly in terms of women deacons or the care for LGBTQ persons in the church. And there was a very interesting question asked by Cindy Wooden, the Rome Bureau Chief of Catholic News Service and a, a longtime fixture of the Vatican Journalist Corps who basically asked the panel at the press briefing to remind the panel that a lot of these issues that the journalists are speaking about are issues that were brought up during the two- or three-year consultation process for the Synod by people across the world in various continents. And to make the point that although journalists are asking these questions, really where they're coming from are from the people of God who have been part of this consultation process, one of the largest consultation processes in world history, and I've brought these things forward for people to talk about here in Rome. 
It was an extraordinary moment. It was met by applause throughout the room. And I think it, it kind of points to one of the difficulties about these communication guidelines that are in place during this synod, because so many people have been invested in this process. And now that it's here upon us in Rome, they feel a bit shut out. And I think when our colleague Cindy made that observation, she spoke not just for herself, but so many people that have been participated and continue to participate and want to participate in the synod going forward and feel that they need to know what's happening in the synod hall. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And one thing we did get to see this week, one of the sessions that was open for everyone to view on live stream was, again, Dominican Father Timothy Radcliffe sharing a, a spiritual reflection. And it was quite interesting. He mentioned in his reflection that synod members in the hall had wept. He's, he used the word weeping or, or wept at the testimony of someone in the synod hall who had spoken about uh, an LGBTQ family member who had felt unwelcome in the church and had then committed suicide. A really interesting window into the discussions, revealing to us some of the intense nature of the discussions, and also perhaps how it could be that some of the members in the Synod of the 450-some members taking part may be changing their views or maybe being confronted with testimonies or witness accounts that they had not heard before. Yeah, we heard uh, an archbishop from somewhere in the Baltics, I can't remember exactly where, talk about how Pope Francis's approach to LGBTQ people since the start of his papacy has helped soften him. And so he said that at one of the press briefings. But what Radcliffe said when he was making those remarks and recalling that testimonial, he said, I, I hope it changed us. And so I think we'd be remiss not to mention another encounter that happened on the sidelines of the Synod, of someone in a sense being changed, of the encounter, the extraordinary meeting between Pope Francis and Sister Janine Gramic. Many of our listeners will know Sister Janine for her 50 years of ministry with LGBTQ Catholics through New Ways Ministry. And this, of course, is a group that has at one point shut out from ministry in the Archdiocese of Washington, receiving a formal notification from the Vatican to now being welcomed by the Pope and being praised for their work. So I, I think that does show change is possible. Yeah, and this is a good place for us to make an advertisement. We were very honored and lucky to have a chance to interview Sister Jeanine Gramic only about 18 hours after her meeting with the Pope, and we released a special episode featuring only that interview earlier this week. I think it's an extraordinary piece of audio that you can listen to. This woman who has had such a moving witness and testimony through her life, through her service of working with LGBTQ members of the church and what it meant for her to meet with the Pope. And you get a sense of the really special feeling. And I hope you all will give it a good listen and just enjoy that moment. I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here for the beginning of the episode here since we have two guests today. And after the music, we'll be back with our first interview with Cardinal Michael Cherney. Our first guest today on the Vatican Briefing is Cardinal Michael Cherney. A Canadian originally from what is now the Czech Republic, Cherney was appointed by Pope Francis as the Prefect of the Vatican's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development in 2022. A member of the Jesuit Order, Cherney has previously served in El Salvador, where he was the Vice Rector of the Central American University, and in Kenya, where he founded and directed the African Jesuit AIDS Network a support network for African Jesuits engaged in finding solutions to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Cherney has served in various roles in Rome since 2010 and was made a cardinal by Francis in 2019. He is serving as a synod member by virtue of his role leading a Vatican dicastery.
Cardinal Trini, thank you so much for joining us here on the Vatican Briefing today. We know you're joining us specifically to speak about the prayer for migrants and refugees that Pope Francis presided over in St. Peter's Square last night. Can you help place that prayer in context for our listeners? Why have this event now in the midst of this Synod of Bishops? I found the event uh, to be a uh, marvelous enactment of what we were talking about. So we spent the whole day in the Synod Hall at our tables discussing, talking, listening, not arguing, I might point out, but really trying to grasp together what it was that we should do. What we should do, that is to say, how the Church can uh, proceed through history in a way that's more faithful to our Lord, more faithful to the Spirit. And then we got up and left our papers behind and walked. The word synod means to walk together. We walked together to St. Peter's Square and gathered around this marvelous sculpture, which uh, represents uh, vulnerable people on the move of all times and of all places, uh, all the displaced and fleeing people who have been such an important part and continue to be such an important part of human history. And there, gathered around this sculpture or monument, we, in effect, listened to them, prayed for them, and prayed for our Church, as guided by our Holy Father, who presided and uh, preached at this uh, brief but very meaningful prayer service. We, one of the moments that we found particularly moving was the first petition in the prayers of the faithful, that it was specifically for the Synod, that it would be a moment of sincere reflection and confrontation on the question of migration. That was something that just stood out to me. Were there moments that you found particularly moving yourself? Well, I, I was most moved by the Holy Father's homily, but I was also moved by just the the feeling of gathering, the, uh, the the bringing together of God's people. Sitting right next to me was someone from Syria. Sitting in front of me was someone from Africa. And sitting to my left was probably another European or North American like myself. And so this this feeling that we are church, and not because we're identical, which maybe was a false concept of Catholicity in the past, not because we're identical, but because we're so different and yet called by the one Lord to follow Him and guided by the one Spirit whom He promised to us. We know there are enormous world events happening, especially with the conflict in Israel and Palestine. As you look at the conflict, what's going through your mind in terms of the humanitarian needs on the ground or the number of people now who will be having very very grave difficulties. Well, you shouldn't help but feel enormous compassion and uh, deep frustration. Um, the, our world seems to be so good at very complicated and uh, challenging things. You would think that uh, making peace between two historical peoples wouldn't, shouldn't be so difficult, but apparently it, it's beyond our abilities, and maybe that is another inspiration to learn how the Church can be more synodal uh, so that it can better serve the world and maybe help the world to reach the peace which, as Jesus says, the peace which the world cannot give. But another aspect is that the people in our synod hall probably personally represent 
25 or 30 or more terrible, ongoing, grinding, costly and horrible conflicts that are happening. And so while we're very sorry for the people involved in Gaza and in Israel, and while we're very sorry for the people involved in Ukraine, we also are uh, compassionate with and mindful of many other people who are suffering, but whom, who do not make it into the media, and therefore, in a sense, we risk not praying for them. And so the Synod is also a reminder that our prayer is not dictated by what are the headlines, no matter how alarming, but by the needs of God's people. And those needs are very acute and very pressing, really, around the world. Cardinal Trinity, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing, and good luck as you continue the Synod sessions next week, and thank you for allowing us on, on the journey with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We're joined on the Vatican Briefing today by Dr. Susan Pascoe. A distinguished leader and educator from Australia, Pascoe is currently the board president of the Australian Council for International Development, which is the chief body for Australian NGOs involved in international development and humanitarian action. From 2012 through 17, she was previously the inaugural commissioner for the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, the independent national regulator of Australian charity organizations. In 2007, Pascoe was appointed member of the Order of Australia for Service to Education. Pasco was part of a group of some 30 theologians, pastoral workers, and bishops that met in Frascati, Italy in September 2022 to craft the working document for the continental phase of the three-year synod process. She is participating now in the synod assembly as a non-voting expert. Dr. Pasco, thank you so much for joining us here on the Vatican Briefing. Pleasure. We know that there are still some regulations in place in the synod about how members can speak about the discussions in the assembly hall. But we've been told in press briefings in recent days that some of the discussions have focused on women's leadership in the church, clericalism, the role of bishops, the need for co-responsibility. Is there anything you can tell us about what those discussions have been like or the atmosphere or tenor of the room? I think from the perspective of facilitator, so that's a particular role, there's been in the small group discussions typically very engaged interactions. One of the interesting features is that not everybody's speaking in their own language. And so there has to be a degree of sensitivity to making sure that everybody's able to fully participate. So that's one factor. So, for example, the first group I had in the B module had a, quite a few people for whom English wasn't their first language, including the two mainland Chinese bishops. And so we had the documents printed, the documents that emerged from our discussion. The aim of this synod is to have it as environmentally friendly as possible, so we're trying to work electronically. That, that would be a, just a, a small example of the working process. The dynamic in the small group is, I suppose, obviously very different to the plenary. We're sitting in round tables. We begin with an introduction to one another. And that forms the, the basis of a really a, a bit of a bond. And if you think about the way that most group interactions work, you're wanting to create a safe space, a place where people can trust one another. And so 
when we then move into the three rounds of the conversation in the spirit, there's a predisposition, I think, for people to, to listen attentively. Of course, it's a discipline to listen, as everybody has their say. And by the time we get to the third round, there's a readiness for exchange. We've noticed with some of the groups, when the facilitators have talked amongst themselves, that some of the groups are uncomfortable with divergence. And I, I wonder whether there's a, a predisposition in a roundtable toward consensus. And so even identifying a divergence seems a little bit unnatural in that context. So I think we're really trying to make sure that those divergences emerge because you could paper over the cracks of some important differences of perspective. So that would be a, an interesting feature. I think the other, you're probably aware that what the small groups are asked to do is to f provide reports that identify convergences, divergences, the open questions that require further study, and then some constructive ideas. Now, not every group follows every bit of that, but by and large, that's what we get to. And so I think it doesn't matter what the issue is. We're seeing a real testing of ideas. We've got enough time in those small groups. Because the plenary sessions involve initially small group reports and then the opportunity for personal interventions, it's at the point of the personal interventions that you hear some of the more particular views where people have got a, a quite a, a strong view of perhaps on a, on a particular topic. So that's where it's likely to emerge. You're probably aware that for most of the time, the theologians are sitting in the room as well. And so they're hearing that. Um, it's always a pressure for them because they've, there's writing to be done, but also the benefit of being in the room and hearing what's emerging from the tables and from the plenaries is really helpful to their writing. So, so it's a very, I think it's a very productive environment. We heard earlier uh, in the week uh, from Father Timothy Radcliffe when he was sort of opening the discussions on authority and participation, where in, in his public remarks, he talked about the moving testimonial of, of an LGBTQ person who didn't feel welcome in the church and later committed suicide. And he said, I hope it changed us. Have you witnessed and experienced change in, in the room as that intervention was being made, and it was deeply moving, I, I was conscious of the fact that it's the human dimension that really impacts. We, we're meant to come with heart and head. It's very easy for the head to be engaged all the time. You're thinking about issues. The, you've got the instrumentum laboris that introduces them in a fairly considered and intellectual way. But when there's speaking from the heart like that, that's really very powerful. So there's been some other interventions of that nature, not necessarily as deeply moving, but people talking from their own experience rather than speaking from a, a theological perspective. And that, I think, has a direct impact. So there, there's been, you have those electric moments. And we often talk about, Pope Francis in particular, talks about the Holy Spirit being the protagonist. 
in this assembly. And when you have the, there's been a multitude of grace-filled moments really, but some of them are, are electrifying. And you're aware of what occurred at Australia's Plenary Council, and you would have seen, I think, a, an excellent summary yesterday from Shane McKinley. Yes, and, and he was on our podcast last week and he spoke about it. So I think our listeners uh, know very well the situation in, in Australia and how it's sort of shaped here, what's happening in Rome. Um, I think significantly. To, to that point, we're, we're here in Rome just outside of the Synod Hall. And it's been quite a journey to get to this point for the Synod. And you've been involved at every step of the way. Can you kind of rewind the clock and tell us about when you first got involved in this process and what it's been like to be at every stage of this process and how you've seen it evolve? It began with a letter that appeared in my email. And I first had to check. It wasn't 1st of April. It came absolutely out of nowhere. I had no anticipation of it. And like many people who've opened up during this process, your initial response is that you are not equipped to take on um, this role. The, the initial invitation was to be a member of the Commission um, for Methodology, but talk to people. And I also think that for me, all along the way, it's felt like a calling. It's the sense that you could be a member of the church at this time in history within this pontificate and have this opportunity to really pause and think about, as Pope Francis would say, what God is wanting for the church in the third millennium. So that's an absolute gift. And you mentioned Frascati. Many times in Frascati, when we were sharing prayer or whatever, people would talk about the sense of our involvement being both a gift and a responsibility. And particularly in Frascati, responsibility to those who put the effort in to contributing to the submissions to bring their voices forward and to keep an integrity and an authenticity in that process. And I do think that for the synthesis for the continental stage, the same. It was a different group, two of us, Maurizio Lopez and I, were asked to contribute remotely. So we weren't involved in the discernment, but we were asked to uh, provide feedback on the draft and also on our readings of the documents as they were emerging. And again, what comes through dramatically is that sense that you, you, you've got to, if this is going to be a, a process where we really allow the Holy Spirit to speak from the grassroots, then we, we have to have a process of integrity. I had the benefit of being, Cardinal Greg asked me to be in accompaniment with the FABC, the Federation of Asian Bishops Conferences. So I attended two of their sessions, including their reception of the draft submission for the document for the continental stage. And I was chairing the work in Oceania. And so with a small group, we took the draft submission to an Episcopal meeting. We were the only one that had an Episcopal meeting and facilitated there with Brother Ian Cribb. And that, again, was a, a, an extraordinary moment, but it did give the opportunity when you then looked at what was emerging and what came through the continental stage to see an integrity there, that the issues that are there, the, the issues that have been raised. You know, you talk about integrity in the synod process, and something that struck me, I think struck Chris and others, especially with the, the Frascati document, was the honesty of it, speaking candidly about reckoning with clergy sexual abuse, or the wide consensus on the need for discussion about the role of women in the church, 
I'm wondering how important is that integrity? How do you keep it? And are these things also coming up in the Synod Hall? Are, are there some sort of consensus kind of emerging among delegates? There's certain issues on where there's extraordinary consensus. And I don't think I'm giving away any secrets to say that today, for example, when we're looking at the issue of authority and leadership, going back to Christ as the model. Again, probably no surprise, but particularly going back to our biblical sources as our primary point of reference. And I'm sure you've been told, and again, not giving away any secrets, formation keeps emerging because we all understand that although we can look at synodality through the Acts of the Apostles and other biblical references to the practice of co-responsibility in the early church, for much of the intervening period, it wasn't the, the practice, and particularly in, in the last century or so. So to relearn that way of being church will take time. And there's a real awareness of that. I think there's also an awareness that we're a privileged group here in Rome and winning the hearts and minds of all that need to be involved, all the bishops, all the priests, all the religious, all the lay people, it's a massive exercise. If you were to look at it from a perspective, if you put your civil hat on just as a change management exercise, it's cultural change. Cultural change takes time. And we also need to be couching that in terms of people's own spiritual journeys, their relationship to church, their relationship to their God, to their pastor. So it's, there's a complexity there that you mightn't have in another context. In other roles in my career, I've been in, in senior government roles where we've been involved in consultation, but it's a much more prosaic exercise. Of course, you want it to be as well an exercise in integrity and authenticity. But when you're involved with the church, and particularly when we're involved in a synodal way, it's really trying to structure it and maintain it in a way that, that this is an exercise where the spirit is with us and hopefully the good spirit is with us as we work with people and for the facilitators as we try and draw from people both their, the views that they came with but getting them as a group to go deeper. And I think you, we all now understand the method in the spiritual conversation in the second round, people are asked, what resonated with you? Were there points you agreed with? Were there points that actually troubled you? And so we're asking them to move from what I think to what we as a group are discerning and whether, again, convergences, divergences, and so on that emerge from the group. You, you talked about your time in Bangkok and also your time in Oceania and in Fiji, I believe. And I remember talking to you after that and you telling me about the role the environment played in such a prominent way. Have you seen those environmental concerns sort of underscored here in, in Rome as well? Well, it's interesting if you think of the environmental issue, but also the issue of migration. Yesterday, we left the Paul VI Hall. We moved across to that beautiful sculpture of the migrants and prayed with Pope Francis um, for the migrants and refugees. If you look at the Instrumentum Laboris, because it was 
concertinaing so many issues. Those issues are there, but along with others. But also, this is a synod on synodality. So it's really what theology, what spirituality, what structures and processes do we need to create a synodal church? And to that, of course, we could add culture and canon law. Do we need to create a synodal church? So while specific issues are there, they're not given quite the same prominence as the issue of synodality itself, because that's the subject of this particular synod. This is the first synod that has involved lay people, including women like yourself, or I guess lay, lay women being appointed as full members. How have you lived that experience? What significance do you think lay women are playing in the discussions? There was a, a opportunity yesterday for the women to get together, all the women. So the UISG hosted a lunch meeting. We walked down to their headquarters, which is only 10, 15 minute walk, had some lunch, and then we sat in language groups and we were simply asked to reflect together in language groups and then to share. And there's, there was a real sense that, that the women feel very positive about being there. There's a consciousness that women are only one in four of the participants. So when there's a, a visibility in the hall, if you like, that there's a, a strong presence of men. Of course, there are lay men there as well, and some of them are making a very significant contribution. The, women are raising issues that relate to women, themselves as women, and their role in the church. So that, and that was expected, and that's really healthy. I think I don't have any sense of, there's certainly no sidelining, there's no diminishing that the women are there, like everybody actually, as equal partners. And in most of the groups, not all, because there are cultural factors as well, when we introduce ourselves, we ask people to indicate how they'd like to be addressed. And most of the groups are saying, call me Andrew, call me Susan, call me whatever. And so that also has a, an equalising effect. In some groups, there's a tendency to go back to, as the Cardinal said, or that these are very, these are learned habits. And, and again, I don't think it's giving anything away to say that there's been a couple of interventions where people have said, if we're looking at being a synodal church and we're looking at language, then the way we address one another is something that, that we need to look at as well. As we wind down here, Synod's winding down into its final week as well. You've gone through a lot of phases. This phase here in Rome is about to wrap up. We've got a year in between the next Synod meeting here in Rome. What are your hopes as we prepare to receive the final document and then for all these delegates to go back into the world? What's on the front of your mind here? The experience here and pretty much everywhere else I've been involved in something similar is that it's the point at which the draft appears that some of the contests occur. So my hope for next week is that we can reach agreement on the nature of the text in a harmonious fashion, as pretty much so far we've managed to achieve. So, so that would be a hope. I would hope that there is produced from here a document that has the length and clarity and accessibility of the document for the continental stage. So all the way through, in fact, 
from the writing of the Vatican Mercum and the preparatory document, they're not in the normal Vatican style. They've, there's been a real focus on using accessible language so that all of the people of God can take the text and make sense of it. And part of accessibility does relate to length. So, but then there's always a trade-off. The shorter you go, the higher level of generality to include the issues. So that's, the, that's a difficulty for the writers. I think we've got very good writers and they're very capable. And then from here, I hope there's not consultation fatigue when it goes back to the diocese, that people are still happy to engage with it. And that will probably depend on the degree to which we're able to elevate some of the really key issues to prominence in the document and focus people in. If you think about the Instrumentum Laboris, there are a lot of issues in there. And that's probably more than people can manage in this process of circularity. So we'll see. I mean, we, we don't know what's going to be brought to us next week, but it's that issue of engaging. If you want to engage, then you've got to think about reception of the document and the degree to which people in their busy lives have the capacity to do so. Well, we're speaking to you here at the Collegio Teutonico, and we know you have a five-minute walk to get back to the Synod Hall, so I guess we should go ahead and wrap it up. But Dr. Pasco, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing. We really appreciate it, and, and good luck as you continue the Synod next week. Thank you. We're so grateful that we had the chance today to be joined by both Cardinal Cherney and Dr. Pasco. I was really struck by Dr. Pasco's remarks on the importance of the integrity of the Synod process, both from her experience at several levels of the Continental Assemblies and in the meeting in Frascati, and the importance she put on making sure that all concerns that were raised in those meetings were put into the documents and were being discussed here in Rome. Yeah, I think that's something that came through. And, and also her attention to building consensus. She said that there's a contest for the final document and the need for to bring everyone on board to build consensus and get them on board so that when this document goes out into the world, it can be a document that all 450 people uh, that are in this room uh, can say, this is a document that we stand by. But there's also another sense where it's a contest. Once it's released, there'll be a sense of, of seeing how it is received. There may be folks that want to manipulate it or ignore parts of it, and that'll be a contest in itself as well that I think we'll continue to monitor at NCR. Yeah, you, you will definitely want to follow along at ncronline.org. Speaking of, this might be a good place to look a bit at the week ahead. We're coming to the final moment of the Synod here, and a lot is going to happen this week. We'll be off to the races on Wednesday and Thursday with full days of discussions and the Synod's final small group meetings. Friday will be a rest day for most of the delegates as the commission working on the final document finishes its work. The big event, voting on the Assembly's final document, will take place on Saturday, October 28th. And then the Synod Assembly will officially end on Sunday with a Mass celebrated by Pope Francis. There's going to be a lot going on this week. You'll definitely want to follow along at ncronline.org and at Chris and my social media accounts. We'll go ahead and wrap it up there for this week. 
Thanks again for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. If you've enjoyed the show, please plan to join us next week for another special interview as we wrap up the discussions at the Synod of Bishops and discuss what happened in the room and with the final document. You can find our show notes with links relevant to today's discussion at ncronline.org. We also have a new email account where you can send us any questions you might have, and they might be answered in a future episode. That account is thevaticanbriefing at gmail.com. Please, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or however you listen. Until next time, you've been briefed. Vatican Briefing is a production of National Catholic Reporter. John Grasso is the executive producer. Joshua McElwee and Christopher White are your producers and hosts. The editing was done by David Dalt of Sandberg Media, and music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out more great reporting from the National Catholic Reporter at ncronline.org.